district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets, he said to them. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for the flesh and blood has not revealed this to, to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo the great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Thank you, Addie. What a fabulous reading that was. What a great reader. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, we are uh, in the middle of a series um, on this rather odd topic, what Jesus believed. And we've talked about how many people believe things about Jesus. Some people choose to believe in Jesus, but very few really learn to believe like Jesus. It would entail, if we wanted to believe like Jesus, which is our goal, is that we would become more like Christ, which means that we would believe like Jesus and see the world the way Jesus saw the world. It would mean that we got to know what Jesus believed which is actually quite knowable. There are four books written about his life by his contemporaries, and we can discern what Jesus believed by looking at what he did, what he refused to do, and certainly by, by what he taught, his teachings. Um, and so that's what we're doing here. It's not necessarily comprehensive. Jesus didn't lay it out this way, um, but it's reflective for us as we think about our goal to learn, as Dallas Willard says, the goal is to not to learn how to live like Jesus lived in the, 20, in the first century, but to learn to live my life the way Jesus would live my life if he were me. And so that's really the goal of discipleship, to learn to live my life the way Jesus would live my life if he were me. And today we're going to just jump right into the fourth sermon on this, and I'll come back in a couple weeks and, uh, and recap a little bit again. Um, 
You might uh, remember me sharing with you about Dietrich Bonhoeffer from time to time. I, I like to uh, share about him in, in sermons, and I probably belabor it uh, a bit, but uh, today is one of those Sundays when I cannot ignore um, the influence of Bonhoeffer. If you've never heard of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you don't know who he was, he wrote a book in Nazi Germany that is one of uh, the most important books for discipleship. Um, Bonhoeffer was working against the Nazi regime during uh, Nazi Germany. He was a theologian and a pastor. He uh, set up a seminary community, uh, an underground seminary community called Finkenwald, and he uh, poured into young um, emerging pastors and helped to train them to be part of the resistance movement. He had fought against Hitler to save Jewish people and others who were being taken to the ovens, and he did it in a really strange way. He actually joined the intelligence unit of the German army as a spy in order to try to collect information that he could then use to save other people. Um, many of his family and friends uh, thought that, that he had become a Nazi. You know, not everybody in Germany were Nazis, you know this. Um, but he officially looked like he was, he never was, but some people mis mistook him for f in that regard. Um, and he used his influence to save many people and was involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler. And then he was caught towards the end of the war and he was put in the Flossenburg concentration camp. And just two days before the Allies came and liberated the camp, he was hung with piano wire. He gave his life for the sake of the gospel. And he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship, The Cost of Discipleship. And it's one of the most, you know, important books, I think, and a classic one for modern Christians. It's based on the Sermon on the Mount. What does it cost to be a disciple of Jesus? What is the cost? And the opening line of the book is this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. Now, if I were a marketing profess, uh, professional for Jesus, I don't know that I'd use that, that motto, come and die. Can you imagine if on our church sign out on 39th that said Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church, worship at 11, come and die with us. I'm not sure it would pack the place out, you know. Um, and so, you know, this is an interesting, but Jesus said, he said, if anyone would become my followers, if anyone would be my disciple, which is an interesting thing because they were already his disciples when he said that to him. But nonetheless, if anyone would continue to be my disciple or one of my followers, they must deny himself, take up their cross and follow me. And then he goes on to say, well, what good would it be to uh, to, to, if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life. And this, of course, Jesus said this in the context of an interaction that he had with his disciples, and particularly Peter. He's talking with his disciples, and he's sort of, this is at the end, towards the end of his ministry. He's making his way towards Jerusalem. He had been uh, his public ministry for three years, and he says to his disciples, what's the word on the street? Now that I've been doing this all this time, who do the people say that I am? What do they, what do they believe about me? 
And they said, well, you know, some think that you're, you know, Elijah, John the Baptist. Some think you're one of the prophets. And, uh, and then he says, well, what about you? Who do you think that I am? And, and Peter offers his confession, this wonderful affirmation of faith. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus praises him for this. Uh, he says, well done, you know. And, and he says, on this rock, on you, on your faith, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And then he gives he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Things seem to be going pretty well for Peter. He got the answer right. He's getting praised by Jesus. And time goes on, um, and then it sort of takes a little shift. Um, and Peter, and Jesus starts to talk about his upcoming death that, and his suffering that is about to happen. And Peter, the one who got the right answer the, just a minute ago, now pulls Jesus aside. I kind of love that. He's like, I don't want the others to hear this. Jesus, this suffering and death of yours must never happen. This, this is just not going to happen. We're not going to let this happen. Don't worry. We'll protect you. This will never be. And Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, which is a striking thing to say to the one who you just gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to. But of course, Jesus isn't saying, Peter, you are Satan, get behind me. What Jesus is doing is he's acknowledging the source that is influencing that situation. Because he says, you have your, your mindset on earthly things, not on things above. And so he says, get behind me, Satan, because that's the same force that was influencing the situation when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness. And he was being tempted in the wilderness to avoid the hard things in life. And what did Jesus say to the serpent, the Satan at that point? Go away. That's what Jesus does in the face of temptation. Go away from me. And so in this point, he's not saying, Peter, my disciple, get away from me. He's talking to the one that is influencing the thoughts of Peter in that moment. And then he says, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I don't know that this is a message that we want to hear, even on a Sunday when we don't have children in our service, but especially perhaps on a Sunday with children in, the, in our service. We could, we, in fact, you guys all could have stayed home today, and, and you could have turned on your television or your, your computer, and you could have watched some a pastor with 30,000 members and, and millions of viewers and perfect hair talking to you uh, about how, in fact, if you give your life to Jesus and you become a Christian, that things are going to go really well for you for the rest of your life. In fact, if you just have the right attitude and you just have positive thinking, then you will be blessed in your life and you won't have suffering and these blessings will even be material to you. In fact, when I, when I listen to this, these kinds of, of, of folks, not that I do all that often, but I'm not clear why we need Jesus at all. It's really all about me and my attitude with the added assurance that God wants me to succeed in the way that culture defines success. Get more and more, and the bigger the better. The gospel of prosperity. Well, maybe I'm just bitter because I don't have millions of people listening to my, my little teachings on Sunday mornings, except that as I work my way through the gospels, it seems to me that Jesus has some doubts about this particular definition of success and about especially this interpretation of his gospel. Where exactly does picking up a cross and following Jesus fit into the promise of happiness and prosperity? That then begs the question, doesn't Jesus want us to live a good life? 
Well, of course he does. In John chapter 10, it says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. But what does abundance mean? That's what we're looking at this morning. And again, as I read scripture, I cannot find a snappy, memorable slogan intended to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. He doesn't provide a five-point plan for how to achieve financial success. And I can't find anything in Jesus' teachings that say everything you need to know about finding happiness. In fact, what we get are words that confront and challenge our cultural and our popular definitions of success and happiness and the good life. Sometimes Jesus is just no fun at all, I guess, huh? Do do you remember the Peanuts cartoons? There was a Peanuts cartoon a a number of, well, way back, of course, when they were written. Um, The actual cartoon was too pixelated for the screen. So just imagine Charlie Brown and Lucy. Charlie Brown is reading a newspaper article to Lucy, and and he says this. He says, it says here that that the young people of today don't believe in any causes. And Lucy responds, that's not true at all. I believe in a cause. I believe in me. I'm my own cause. If I'm not a cause, what is? I believe in the cause of good old me. That's the cause I believe in. She walks away still ranting and raving. I'm the best cause I know. And I believe in that cause. I'm the, and all Charlie Brown can do is turn away and mutter, good grief. Good grief. It seems that Lucy might be the voice of 21st century America. We take up our own cause of me. Um, But somewhere along the way in her focus on me and mine, she lost touch with the way of Jesus, the way of the cross that he talks about. So what is he talking about? Just what is he talking about? Deny ourself, take up the cross, and follow. Well, what does it mean to deny ourselves? Well, one way of thinking about that is to think about the attachments that we have. We have so many attachments in our lives. And at one point in the gospel in John 15, Jesus says, remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Attach yourself to me. Don't attach yourself. If you're a grapevine and you attach yourself to a lemon tree, you're just gonna die. And really, if you just stay attached to me, that's all you need to do. And the vine will produce the nutrients that will produce fruit in your life. Stay attached to me. But the problem is that we have so many other things that we're attached to. Some people are attached to money or the idea of money. Some are attached to ambition. Uh, We're attached to what other people think about us. We're attached to our ideologies, our political views. We're attached to our preferred futures, our lifestyles, our retirement plans. We're even attached to our families. And these things aren't bad necessarily. They just are not the ultimate thing that can bring the fulfillment that we're looking for in our lives. Our attachments create anxiety for us because they make promises that they cannot fulfill. And Jesus is saying, if you wanna follow me, you've gotta leave some of these attachments behind because they're not gonna last anyway. And so first, that means that we've gotta know that we're attached. Then we gotta know what we're attached to, which is an invitation during the week in prayer and, and the prayer of examine to reflect on what are my attachments in order to release them because they often can take control over our lives. Let me try to illustrate this uh, by telling two contrasting stories. The first story 
is about a woman by the name of Barbara Jenkins. Barbara Jenkins. And it's told by uh, the late Fred Craddock, who was a preacher theologian. Barbara Jenkins was a member of his church. And he says this, I'll never forget the day when Barbara Jenkins walked into the room. It was at a reception of some sort. People standing around, having a lot of conversation, but not really important. Sure could use some rain. Yeah, been pretty hot too. And then Barbara Jenkins came in. There was something about the room that changed when she arrived. Is that Barbara? Yep, that's Barbara Jenkins. Barbara Jenkins had spent her time writing letters, making calls, going and seeing folks with the sole purpose of making a difference in the way the law treats juveniles, juvenile offenders. Night and day, seven days a week, she would advocate on behalf of juvenile defenders to try to bring little changes to, to the law in the way that it would seek to bring justice. And once she was asked, do you enjoy doing this advocacy work all the time, spending so much time doing this? And she said, no, not really. You get paid? Are you on salary? No, oh no, I don't, I don't get paid for this. Do you have any children? Uh, did you have children who were in trouble with the law and now you're trying to, no, no, no children, never in trouble with the law. Then why in the world do you keep doing this? It's no fun, you're not making any money, and none of your friends are doing it. To which she responded, because I have to. Because I have to. This is someone who understands what it means to deny herself, take up the cross, and follow. She sees that she had been bought with a price. In contrast to that story of Barbara, there was an article in the opinion section in the New York Times a number of years ago about commercial airline travel. And within that article, there was um, uh, someone who was interviewed about his experience. And this man who was interviewed was a billionaire. And he had made his wealth by inventing a particular widget. And so the widget billionaire talked about how he was on a flight from L.A. to New York, sitting in first class. And also in first class was a young mother with a, with a baby who was crying the entire way, all the way from L.A. to New York, and the man decided, the widget billionaire decided that he would never again fly a commercial jet, and this is what he wrote, because my mission statement for myself is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Let's just ponder that for a moment. Would you just meditate on this? My mission statement is to exclude from my life anyone who might bum me out. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must learn to exclude from your life anyone who might bum you out. Right. I think the life of Barbara Jenkins, in contrast to the widget billionaire, the choices she made, the people she fights for, that gives us an insight into what Jesus was talking about here, putting ourselves aside. The image of taking up a cross is a difficult one to, to, to handle, to bear, to sink our, wrap our brains around, both in the first century and even today as well. The phrase has kind of been watered down in our culture, so we might use it or hear it um, in this way, you know, uh, he has, he's going through cancer, 
he has a heavy cross to bear. Or she has a heavy cross to bear, she's going through a divorce. But nobody in the first century would have thought that by hearing such a thing. The cross in the first century was a symbol of state-sanctioned public execution. If you saw someone carrying a cross in the first century, the one thing that you would know is that they weren't coming back. They were going to die physically and publicly. And so when Jesus says this, it would have sounded like, pick up your electric chair and follow me. Pick up your gallows and follow me. That's how it would have sounded. It's this drastic call to something very, very deep that's not about well, every time I do go through something hard, I'm, I'm carrying a cross. No, it's, it's a choice, a deliberate choice to die to the self for the sake of something greater. And that, that leads me to, to say that the path, the path of the cross or cross-bearing is not the pathway of defeat. It's not the pathway of defeat. It's the pathway of transformation, the cross isn't the pathway of defeat, it's the pathway of transformation, of dying to the old, as Heather said in between our songs, in order that the new would be born. One new, so what are we dying to? One New Testament scholar says that when, when Jesus spoke of death, of taking up the cross, of dying to ourselves, he was talking about two deaths, two deaths he had in mind. One is the dying to self as the center of our concern. The dying to self as the center of my concern. And two, the dying to the world as the center of my significance and my security. Those are the two things, by the way, that psychologists, says that psychologists say we all need in our lives. Security and significance. I would also add belonging, but security and significance. Security, uh, am I safe? Significance, do I matter? And so what, what this theologian is saying is that to die to ourselves is to die to myself as the center of my concern and to die to the world as the source of my security and my significance. Barbara Jenkins, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, even Tyree Nichols' mother. They get, they get that. They got that. They embrace it. Barbara Brown Taylor uh, wrote, following Jesus means receiving our lives as gifts instead of guarding them as our own possessions. It means sharing the life that we've been given instead of bottling it for our own consumption. It means giving up the notion that we can build dams to contain the bright streams of our lives and letting them go instead, letting them swell their banks, spill their wealth, running full and growing fuller. See, it's out of, out of the overflow of the heart. It's out of the abundance of God's love for us that we can then give ourselves away. This means that, we, that to die to ourselves doesn't mean that we're supposed to have a low view of ourselves or that we should not have our dignity. Dallas Willard, he put it like this. He said, dying to self does not exclude having a proper sense of self-worth including the need to feel recognized and valued. Recognition from others is a good and proper thing, but it must not be what controls our lives. It must not be the, it, the goal of our existence. If we find that our need for recognition is consuming our thoughts and determining our behavior, 
then we need a higher source. We need to move to a higher source for our sense of personal worth. That source is, of course, God's love for us. And that leads to the third step, deny ourselves, which is learn to let go of all our attachments, to, to, to take up our cross, which is to no longer look to myself as the center of my concern, look to the world as the source of security and significance. And then he says, and follow me. Without that third part, we'd kind of be left to go, well, what's left then? There's no self. Notice Jesus doesn't say, deny yourself, take up your cross, and make the most of it. He doesn't say, take up your cross and, uh, and, and, and find somebody who, you know, you can hang out with or whatever. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Because it is in him that we find our true self. It is in him that we find our true life. And if we make that our aim to be like Christ, we grow in our ability to live from that place of our true selves. Paul said it like this in Colossians chapter 3. He said, since uh, if you have been raised with Christ, he says, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things, which is exactly what Jesus criticized Peter from doing. Set your hearts on, on, on things above, not on earthly things, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Did you know that Christ is your life? Did you know that your life is hidden with Christ in God? That's what Paul says. And the early church understood this um, and, the, and uh, this is exactly how they understood the rite of baptism. Uh, in those days, churches didn't have, you know, nice sanctuaries and baptismal fonts. And so when they wanted to baptize someone, they brought them down to the river. And always on Easter morning. And we still have some of the liturgies that we've inherited from, from those days, from the second and third centuries. And what would happen is if a candidate were to be baptized... Uh, she would go down to the edge of the river and he would uh, take off his outer garments and there would be a robe on, a white robe on underneath. He would take off his outer garments and would say, I'm taking off the old self. I'm taking off uh, the, the old man, the old woman, the old addictions, the old, I'm putting off the old habits, putting off the old sins, the old illusions of life, putting all that off. And then this person would go down into the water and the priest would immerse them all the way underwater and would say, buried with Christ in your baptism. And then raise them out of the water and say, now you are risen with Christ to new life. Using these, these words from Paul. Um, and then as they got out of the water, they would, there would be a, a new set of clothing on the other side of the river that they would put on to say, I am now clothing myself with the character of Christ, with patience, humility, gentleness, and kindness. And their new lives begun. 
What this means for, the, for us is that the more we become like Jesus, the more we seek to become like Jesus by putting off the old self and taking on his identity, his character, his teaching, his thoughts, his compassion into our lives, the more we become our true selves. And in fact, the more human we become. When someone says, I don't really want to go and serve the poor, that's just not who I am, that's wrong. It actually is who you are. You're just not able to see who you truly are, especially if you're baptized. If you're, you've died to the old self and you've taken on the life of Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God. Christ served the poor. If you say you can't, I'm not interested in serving the poor, you're not living into your true self. Thomas Merton said that our false self is a self that we create, that we fabricate, Apart from love, apart from relationship, apart from God. So when we define ourselves apart from that, that's called the false self, and that's what needs to die. It's the ego. Um, when we say that Jesus was fully human, just like he's fully God, we're not just saying that he's 100% human in his biology, although we are saying that. What we're also saying is that the fullness of what it means to be human is found in him. He is the human one. The phrase he used to refer to himself more than any other is son of man or the son of humanity, the human one. And so the more we become like him, the more human we become, not less. Well, I want to close uh, with this excerpt from uh, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Both Mere Christianity and um, The Cost of Discipleship are two foundational books for, for Christians. And in here, he, he gives all, in the last couple of chapters, he gives these multitude of analogies to try to get this point across. And I'm just going to read a brief excerpt. Christ says, give me all I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself, my own, my own will shall become yours. Well, God, we thank you for giving us the greatest gift in Jesus Christ. What would we do what would we do without him? We would be so lost, not even knowing who we are, what is the difference between our true self and our false self, not even knowing what it means to be human. But you've given him to us to not only save us, but to show us who we truly are. So from the inside out, we pray that you will transform our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, Help us to not look to the world for security and significance, but to the one who calls us the beloved. Help us to not look to ourselves as the center of our concerns, but to those who are in need. 
And may we find the great joy and liberation of being, a dis- of being disciples who have denied ourselves, who are working on picking up our crosses each day and seeking to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.